Beloved, I am not, I am writing no, writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had, that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, He is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcame the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for bringing us here by your grace. We pray that this morning we would behold the Son in the Spirit, that in your light we shall see light, and what it means for us to walk in the light and not in the darkness. Help us this morning. Give us better clarity of what it means to be a Christian Help us see where we lack in our Christian walk. Put a mirror in front of our face so we can gaze upon all our impurities. Help us by your Spirit. Please be with us by your Spirit. Open our eyes. Allow, allow uh, anything to distract our minds during our time together in your Word. Help us get all of what we can from your Word this morning. Let our listening skills and, and our attention be far better than it was last week and the week before that and the week before that. But we know we can't do this in and of ourselves, but we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and be the one who shows us where we are in error, the one who challenges us, but also the one who encourages us. Father, be with us by your Spirit and let us see your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, saints. I greet you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you all. Um, what do we, what we have been talking about, um, the past couple of weeks is we've been in, uh, the John's first letter and if one, one was to ask you, what are, uh, some of the things that you despise that you don't like in your life, uh, what are some of the things that you would say? You know, for me, some of the things that uh, I don't like in this world is when you are driving and then you get a ticket. Let's say you're on a carpool lane and you get out of the line. You get a ticket for being getting out of the line. And suddenly the ticket is like $500 or something crazy. And I wonder, where do you get this number of Three to five hundred dollars by simply crossing a line. Where, where does this number come from? If you're going 
60, or if you're going 80 miles an hour, where do you get this number from? Why, why, why is the number so high? Um, one of the things I despise is when you go to a, a really, really good restaurant and you've been looking forward to going to that really good restaurant and that restaurant isn't what you expected. The food comes out cold. The waiter or the waitress is no good. You get horrible service. Uh, you might say to yourself, I'm never going to go back to that place again. Another thing, especially when I was younger, that I hated was taking tests. Taking tests. And you might uh, say amen to that. If you have been in school for some time um, or even in the workforce, you know that one of the requirements to get the job or even to continue in your schooling is that you have to pass certain tests. I hate taking tests. In fact, when I was in, I think, sixth grade, I got caught cheating on a test. One of the most embarrassing things that ever happened in my life where the teacher called me to the front and she made me call my mother in front of everyone. And I remember my mom saying, so what's going to happen? Are they going to kick you out of school? And so she had to come and, and to my defense and all that. Um, but as much as we hate tests, tests are in a lot of ways, really good for us. Because not only does it show how much we know, but how much emphasis are we putting in what we know. And in the Christian life, what we come to learn is that in order for us to know that we are a Christian, there are certain tests that the Bible lays out before us. If one was to ask you, how do you know that you are of the faith? And if you were to say, well, because I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Well, that's a great answer to give. But the Bible also requires us to go a little bit further. You see, it's not merely professing something. But it's also living out what you profess. The ultimate test for the Christian is what you were reading in Scripture really penetrating to how you are walking in the world. How people see you. How do others, when they ask, or when they ask uh, others, if you were given to an assessment of, of who this person is, would they be able to say with full confidence that this person here not only declares that they're a Christian, but they also act, they walk, and they talk like they're a Christian. Saints, that is what we are in need of in our time in this age, are we not? Especially as we see the world getting much darker and darker. We need Christians who, yes, profess light, but also are walking in the light as well. We need to be doers of the word and not simply just hearers of God, God's word. And this morning, what we have before us in our, these ten verses is that the beloved disciple John presents to the Christian two tests. There are two tests that John presents to us that we are to evaluate our Christian life in light of. And both of these tests 
have the same foundation, have the same root, and that is love. How can we test if we are of the Christian faith? Where is your love at? And to help us out, I just have two points I'd like for us to consider. The first point, or the first test is, do you love God's people? Do you love God's people? And the second test, do you love the world? Do you love God's people? The first test. And the second test, do you love the world? And what I want you to do this morning is I want you to not merely hear what I'm saying and evaluate whether or not this is a good sermon or not, but Simply, I want, you, I want you to evaluate yourself in light of what John is saying to these struggling Christians. I want you this morning to put a mirror in front of your face and try to, as, as hard as you can, as, as much as you can, to gaze upon all your impurities. See where there's blemishes. See where there's blind spots. So let's look at the first point, and that is, do you love God's people. And when I say God's people, what I mean by that is the brothers and sisters in Christ. The one who is sitting to your right and to your left. Do you love God's people? If you remember from last Lord's Day, we learned from the Apostle John that true walkers in the light obey the commands of God. That true walkers in the light obey the commands of God. John says in chapter 1, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He said in chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see, friends, the essence of the Christian life is the two greatest commandments that Jesus tells us. Love for God and love for your neighbor. That's the essence of the Christian life. Love for God and love for your neighbor. And the way that we demonstrate our love for our Lord is not merely with our lips, but are we truly obeying what he has commanded? The Bible exhorts us not to be tongue-only Christians, meaning that we aren't simply to say that we love Christ without striving every single day to obey his word. It makes no sense to call yourself a Christian And without living out what Christ has prescribed for us in his word. When we think of the word Christian itself, it is to be Christ-like. It is to live and to walk like he did. We are to be practicing Christians. Just as much as we are to be professing Christians. And from verses 7 through 11 in our verses this morning... The Apostle John challenges us once again to test whether we are of the faith. And the first test is the command to love others. 
Consider with me verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John begins by speaking of a commandment that is both old and new. It's both old and new. And it's quite strange the way verses 7 and 8 are worded. If you look in your Bibles. Because it seems that John is contradicting himself. He says that I'm not writing you no new commandment, but an old one. But at the same time, it's a new commandment. How do we make sense of these statements? Well, we first must ask, what commandment is John talking about? What is John talking about? What is this old commandment but new commandment? And it's obvious if we read the following verses that he has the command to love in mind. The commandment that's old and but also new is the command to love. Love. Now we have to ask, how is this commandment to love both old and new? Well, in one sense, the command to love is old because it's at the heart of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments can be divided up into two parts. Love for God and love for your neighbor. That's how Jesus Christ summarizes them. But also the love commandment itself is found in the Old Testament. We read in Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in this sense, John can say that I am not writing you no new commandments, but an old commandment. It's as old as the Old Testament. For it's in the Old Testament. It's at the heart of the Ten Commandments. Love is what encapsulates the law of God. Jesus makes this point clear in Matthew 22. One asked teacher, what is is the great commandment of the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the love is an old commandment because it has its roots in God's law. But we have to ask, but in what sense then is it new? If the commandment to love has already been there in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, then how in the world is it a new commandment then? And to answer that question, we must turn to John chapter 13, verses 34, 35. And if you can just hear me, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I love loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here, Jesus says the same thing John says. And he's appealing to this new commandment. So what's new about the commandment to love? Well, clearly, the newness of the command to love isn't the command itself. Hear me now. The, the newness of the command to love is not... The command itself. 
For we have always been commanded to love. It is instead in the pattern or the standard or the model of our love for one another. That's what's new about this commandment to love. It is the way in which we are to love that's different. Due to the coming of Jesus Christ. One theologian has said, Never in history of mankind had God appeared in human flesh and demonstrated his love for sinful and broken people by sacrificing himself on a cross so that they might live forever. Love may have well been required prior to the coming of Christ, but love to the degree and in the same fashion as was seen in the self-sacrifice of Jesus for his church is altogether new. Quite simply, it has changed lovingly forever. You see, Jesus gave the old commandment new emphasis because he lived it out in a radically new way. In fact, Samuel Rutherford said that Jesus Christ is simply loved wrapped in flesh. In Jesus, love became new in the lengths that one's love will go. How one will show and prove their love to you. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Saints, you find me a definition of love that is greater. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. All of this is to say that John and Jesus are calling us to the same thing. They're exhorting us to the same thing. They're telling us that we are to have the same type of love that Christ had. And that same type of love that Jesus had is a sacrificial love. It's a love that goes beyond a high or I'll just pray for you. It's a love that goes beyond how is your work going. It's a love that simply goes beyond all the things that we casually say to each other just so we can start conversation. But it's a love that lays down your life. And saints, this is the distinguishing mark of one's faith. This is why John says in verses 9 and 11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. He says in verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you do not love your brother and sister in Christ, then simply you are walking in the darkness, no matter how much you know and no matter who you confess. What John is saying is a Christian without love is a blind man. Hear me now, a Christian without love is a blind man and he does not know where he is going. Love and darkness in the Christian life don't mix because we serve a God who is love and in him there is no darkness found. Now you might say, well, I have a reason not to love. I have a reason to hate because this person and that person, they wronged me greatly. They did this to me and they did that to me. But friend, ask yourself, after you were wronged, whatever it may be, did you once give them 
the benefit of the doubt in love. When was the last time someone did something so terrible to you and your, in your mind response was, well, maybe he's having a bad day. Maybe he's having a bad morning. Maybe he didn't have his coffee. Maybe something happened to him. When was the last time you actually gave someone the benefit of the doubt in love? And also in love, you assumed the right things. Not, man, he hates me. Oh, man, she, I, already, I knew it. She, she never liked me. I knew it. Out of everyone in the world, we should be consciously and more long-suffering and patient to our brothers and sisters of the faith. I'm not talking about people in your workforce or your family. I'm talking about Christians. Christian to Christian. As hard as they may be, we are to be the most patient and long-suffering with each other. But friends, ultimately, if one wronged you, Ultimately, if wrong one has was unkind to you, think of our Christ. There was nothing, there is nothing that hasn't been done to you that first wasn't done to Jesus Christ. No matter how bad one has ever treated you, it pales in comparison to how they treated our Savior. Think about this for three years. He lived with a man who was one day going to betray him. You think Jesus didn't know that Judas wasn't going to betray him? And yet he still walked with him. He taught him how to pray. He washed his feet in spite of knowing all that what Judas is going to do. For three years, he discipled a man who was one day going to deny him. Peter was one of the disciples that was closest to to Jesus. He saw everything. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the parables. He heard the sermons. Jesus loved Peter. But also he knew that one day Peter, the one who I love greatly, is going to deny me. But in spite of that, he still loved him. Think about our Christ on the cross. After his enemies had beaten him, had spit on him, had mocked him. What does he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The ones who just beat him. He's on the cross praying to the Father. Father, forgive them though. You see, and that's so interesting because with us, we forgive after a week's time, do we not? We got we to gotta allow ourselves to cool down a little bit before we can start thinking rationally and start forgiving. But this is just moments after he was beaten. He says, forgive them, Father. Saints, this saying from our Lord, I must say, is at the heart of Christian character. This is at the heart of Christian character. While the wounds were still fresh, and while 
Blood was dripping from his body. In agony, he says, Father, forgive them. Question, saints. How are you doing in this area this morning? Is your Christian life modeled after Jesus Christ? Is your Christian life characterized by your love for God and your love for your brothers and sisters? And friends, these two commandments are not to be mutually exclusive. Our love for God isn't to be here and our love for our neighbor and brother and sister in Christ is to be here. But our love for God informs our love for our brothers and sisters of the faith. They're going to go hand in hand, one with another. You can't love God without loving God's children. Friends, truly ask yourself and hear me now. Do I love the people of the church? Or do I simply tolerate them? Do I love the people of the church? Or do I simply tolerate them? Am I more cordial with them than I am loving? At what lengths will I go to show my love for the people of the church? Am I only loving those who are loving to me first? Or do I love or do I only love those in which I have most in common with? Or do I only love those who I've known the longest? These are not things I'm making up. These are things that I have heard from Christians. People have left churches because their love for their brother and sister of the faith is somewhere else. One might say, well, why can't I just go to church? And not to be involved in anyone's life. Why can't I just go to church and not talk to anyone or, or build relationships with others in the church? Saints, because our salvation is evidenced by our love. We heard it this morning in our catechism question. That how we show that the word abides in us is how much we live out the word. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ confirms your claim to love God. And your lack of love for your fellow Christians reveals your lack of love for God. Simple as that. There is no gray area. Think about this, saints. If God dies for these particular people, and you treat them as if they don't interest you, then how much is your heart like his? How much do you truly want to be like God? Mark 3, verses 31 and 35 says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus is saying this, by the way. And looking at all those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. What we see in this text is Jesus prioritizes his spiritual family over his fleshly family. Saints, we are to learn from this, are we not? There is to be no distinction between those who are the same blood and those who are the same faith. No distinction whatsoever. 
We are to love our brother, our spiritual brothers and sisters the same way, if not more, than our fleshly brothers and sisters. We are not to wait to the consummation of all things. We are not to wait till we are in heaven to start loving Christians. We are to start now. Because that's what the Bible commands. So we are to love one another. And friends, this takes much work, I know. But what does James say in James chapter 2, verse 18? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. We love to focus on salvation by faith alone and Christ alone as we should. That is the ground, the basis and the root of our salvation. It is in Jesus Christ alone, but we must take serious that a faith, if it is a true faith, shows itself publicly. It shows itself publicly. And one of the distinguishing marks of one's faith is love. If you have not love, then what have you really learned about the Christian faith? Honestly, what have you learned about the gospel if you have not love? Paul says, without love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. J.C. Ryle says, where there is no Christ-like love, hear this, where there is no Christ-like love, there is no grace. There is no work of the Spirit and no reality in our religion. That quote echoes what John says in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. Friends, what makes a Christian? Part of it can be your theological knowledge. And I love when people tell me, this person knows this much and this person knows that much. I always want to reply, but how much do they love? One of the things that we as elders look for in other elders when we ask them, so you feel called to be a minister? You feel called to preach? They say, yes. Well, do you also feel called to love? Do you also feel called to shepherd? Do you also feel called to answer that phone call at 3 a.m. when brother so-and-so is going through it? Do you also feel called to sacrifice your time and your effort and all of your being for God's people? And saints, that's not just for those who desire to be shepherds, but that's for you as well. Do you desire to be saved? Great. But also, do you desire to love as well? Do you desire to care for others? And here John says that those who love his brother and sister in the faith are those who abide in Christ's light. Let's now consider our second point, and that is, do you love the world? The second test, do you love the world? So the first test was, do we love our brothers and sisters? Now the second test, do you love the world? Look at me at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When we read our Bibles... We have to understand that words have a range of meanings. And one of the crucial ones in the New Testament is this word world. In fact, if you get this word wrong, then you get a lot wrong regarding your salvation. It is a Greek word, cosmos, world. And it's used 186 times in the New Testament. 
77 times in the Gospel of John, 23 times in 1 John, and another time in 2 John. John loves this word world. And there are three general meanings when we consider the word world in John's writings. First, the word world can mean the world as the sum of all created things, the universe. That's one way we can use the word world, right? John 1.10 speaks of all things that were made through him. The world was made through him. The world that is all created things, the universe. Secondly, the world or this Greek word cosmos can mean the world as the dwelling place of man or earth. We can say, uh, as John 3.19 says, light has come into the world. Or 1 John 4.17 uh, As he is, so also we are in this world. So here the word world means not so much the whole universe, but just the earth. So one meaning can be the universe, one meaning can be earth. But thirdly, cosmos can mean the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. Life of human society as organized under the power of evil. And it is this last meaning that John has in mind here. One commentator says this, that John is thinking of the world insofar as it has become rebellious, the source of desires which stand in opposition to the love of God. It's this world that stands in opposition to God. John is speaking of this world system. That sets itself up in opposition to the things of God. And as Christians, I'm not saying, and John's not saying that we are not to love God's creation. That we are not to love human beings. But we are not to love the world system. This evil system. That every single day is trying to find out ways to rebel against God's law. We are not to withdraw ourselves from society. We live in this world, do we not? But we must not love those things this evil world system loves. Now, what are those things that the world loves? John says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's consider these three things John says. First, the first love of the world is the desire of the flesh. The desire of the flesh. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, 19 and 21, Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And these things alike, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Simply put, the desire of the flesh is to desire your sin. The desires of the flesh is simply to desire your sin. It is to crave our most deepest and most satisfying sins. Whether it be sexual sins, whether it be gossip, whether it be physical violence, whether it be drug use. Saints, those are the things that the world promotes, is it not? Online, 
There's a website called Ashley Madison. Where people who are in marriages or people who are in relationships can cheat and have affairs without ever getting caught. We in America have legalized gay marriage. In fact, my son likes to watch this cartoon where this baby is taking a bath and it goes through this sequence of families. So you have one family taking this kid a bath and it's a mom and it's a, it's a boy and a girl, a man and female. And then the next, it's two women taking a kid a bath. And the next scene, it's two men taking a kid a bath. It's everywhere. It's being thrown at our faces. You can't watch a show now without someone being gay. Some of those richest people in this world are music artists who advocate excessive drug use. What are the desires of the flesh, saints? It's essentially whatever makes you happy, do it. Whatever makes you happy, then you go on and do it. That's what the world says, it's a not. Whatever makes you happy, then you go on and do it. Just... The question I have for us, friends, is how do you see yourself in light of this warning? Are you one who's easily persuaded by commercials, movies, parsers, other looking at other men and women who say, do whatever you need to do in order to be happy? Friends, that's how deceptive sin is. It comes wrapped in a nice shred bow. And friends, the reality is, living in this world, we are constantly being presented with a nice red bow of sin. In fact, once you leave this church, you get in your car, you're going to be presented with a nice red bow of sin. Saints, be on guard. We are not to engage in the desires of our flesh. And that's not to say that we are to give up all of our fun. I think what's, that's what many Christians believe. Is that if I give up all of my sin, then I'm never truly going to be satisfied again. They say, if I can't do those fun, sinful things that I used to do, then I'm going to live a really boring life. That was the great Augustine's problem. He said that when he would consider his sin and not going and acting upon his sin, his sin would talk to him. And his sin would say, you're, you're going to leave me? You're, 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 never, you're not going to involve yourself with me? Augustine will go on to say, and after I committed that sin, I would sit in darkness and I would pull out my hair. Friends, your fleshy desires, the sins you act out, hear me now, they're not the apex of true happiness and joy. Your fleshly desires and the sins that you act out are not the height and the apex of true happiness and joy. Isn't that how we view sin? That this sin that I'm going to commit is going to be the sweetest, most pleasurable thing that I can ever involve myself in. That there's going to be, there's nothing that can top this sin that I'm about to do. Oh, how are we so easily pleased by the little temporal happinesses that the world throws our way? 
It's like that young man who falls in love with every girl who comes his way. You know him. No standards. Easily tossed from this woman to that woman. Friends, if you're battling with sin, my challenge to you this morning is to raise your standards. Raise your standards of what joy and what happiness is. Keep your desire. Keep your wanting to be pleased. Keep your wanting to be happy, but redirect them to something that's far more lovely. That's something that's far more sweet. That's something and someone whose satisfaction never ends. You see, saints, the way to kill sin is not simply by writing down a list of do's and don'ts. But the way to kill sin, the way to fight one pleasure, is with a far greater pleasure. That's how you defeat sin, saints. It's considering this pleasure and putting it on a weighing scale and then putting Christ there and seeing which one is more pleasurable, which one is more sweeter. That's how you fight sin. You fight sin by gazing upon Jesus Christ and all that you have in him. That's how you fight sin. It's every single day gazing upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every single day understanding that you are a child of God. Saints, impress words like Proverbs 24 verses 13 and 14 on your heart. My son, eat honey for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Or Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Read your word. Yes to learn, but read your word. For from the rock the sweetest honey drips out. The second love of the world that John mentions is the desires of the eyes. Now, this speaks of those things that we see that lure us into sin. As we look upon others with jealousy, because they have what you do not have. It's to be easily swayed to rebel against God's holy law to get what you desire. That's the lust of the eyes. But I must note that the lust of the eyes is not merely those things that you can see with the external eye, but it's really anything that you don't have. Whether it be perfect children A perfect spouse, perfect house, perfect job, perfect figure, perfect car, perfect vacations, perfect income. It's those things. And this creates in many Christians sinful discontent. You know, discontentment is a sin. And friends, in essence, this is what the world preaches to us. That you're not satisfied, are you? And friends, that type of attitude has caused even the mightiest of men to fall. Discontentment has caused marriages to fail. It's caused Christians to turn from the faith. It's caused persons, from my own experience, to leave this church, move out of state, and never return back to church. Because they need more money. They found a better job. Amen to that. 
But don't leave the faith. Saints, discontentment is no light sin. Because hear me now, what it does is it turns idols into gods. Saints, we are to have the mind of Paul in Philippians 4, 11, and 12. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. When was the last time you even meditated on that? The Puritan Jeremiah Barrows has said it beautifully. So to be satisfied and quiet, be content with your contentment. I lack certain things that others have and hear this, but blessed be God, I have a contended heart which others have not. I, I, I may lack this, I may lack that, but man, I have something that they don't have. I have a new heart. I have a new spirit within me. I have been brought out of the darkness into the light. These words remind me of the words of Christ in John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And I've said this before, but it's quite interesting that when fathers and mothers leave their children, they leave to them wills of of great wealth. They leave to their, their, their family great estates. Jesus is about to leave and he says, I don't leave you with great estates. I don't leave you with worldly riches, but I leave you peace. Beloved, we, ha- we have in Christ the fullness of heavenly riches. Now please don't think that I'm saying desiring things or wanting things are bad. I want things and I desire things daily. But what are your motives for wanting those things? And your, is your life content if you don't have those things? Can you live if you don't have that? Again, Jeremiah Barrow says, Every comfort that the saints have in this world is an earnest penny to them of those eternal mercies that the Lord has provided for them. Saints, guard your eyes. And be content in your contentment. And the third love the world of the world that John brings to our attention is the pride of life. And this lie simply says that your life is all about you. Do whatever you want. It's the desire to shine and outshine others. Whether it be luxurious living, status, family. It's to take sinful pride in all that you have. Having things are not bad but it's flaunting those things in other people's faces is what's bad. You see it all the time. Facebook, Instagram, whatever you have. And people are constantly trying to show what they have. Friends, this is, that's a danger. It can be a danger at times. We are to be humble in everything that we have, knowing that we ourselves did not produce it. But every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Friends, why are these three lies so dangerous? Why are we to guard ourselves from such worldliness? Because it is the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the sins that our first parents committed. 
That is why these sins are so dangerous. Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat. They desired to be like God, and because of their actions, they plunged us down the abyss of sin. Saints, be on guard in this world. Study all the things that this world throws your way. Know its shadows. Watch for your sin's footprints. Know when it's coming. And don't be ashamed to be righteous in a world that's evil. And saints, that's the great antithesis of us in the world. That's the great line between us and the world. Worldliness is whatever sin, uh, whatever uh, is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. The world is going to think you're strange because you live under God's holy law. So what? Don't be ashamed to pray when you're at a restaurant. Don't be ashamed when others ask you, what's your opinion on gay marriage? That's a violation of God's law. Don't be ashamed in this evil world to be righteous. Do not love this world. And I have to say that don't think that your allegiance is to this world. Your allegiance is not to this world. Saints, your allegiance, first and foremost, is to your God, not to your government. Your allegiance is to your Savior, not this society. It's to your Christ, not this country. And to those who might ask, well, why, why can't I just believe in Jesus Christ and do, and do whatever I want in this world? There are some Christians who believe that. It's why can't I just profess Christ and just do whatever I want in this world? John gives us the reason in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Saints, this is great comfort, is it not? What John is essentially saying is this evil system is dying a slow death. And any riches that you try to store up in this world, it will pass away along with this world. My father had an abundance of great things. But I have them. My brother has them. My mother has them. He can't take them with him. But what he can take with him is the great peace he had on this earth. That's what he can leave behind. That's what he can take with him. Friends, one day, you will not be here. You do know that's right. That's one day you will not be sitting in that seat. That's your flesh that's your eyes, that's your pride, your sins that you commit, they all one day will fade away. And the sad reality is that so many called believers who love this world and love this Christ will pass away with this world and be separated from Christ. Those temporal things that you love so much will cause you to live an eternity without the most joyable and the most desirable and the most sweetest person that ever existed. Saints, the enjoyment of temporal sins will ultimately lead to eternal torment. But if you are faithful, John says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Jesus said in John 14, 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirsty again, be thirsty again. The water that I give them will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. In closing, saints, you might say, all that what John is saying sounds really nice on paper. It sounds really good when you're preaching it. But honestly, I don't know if I can do it. I I don't know if I can love my brothers and sisters in Christ the way that Christ has loved me. I, I don't know if I can sustain from these sins that the world throws my way. I don't know if I can guard my eyes and guard my flesh. I don't know if I can do that. To the Christian who doubts whether you can live in the way that mirrors what John says, consider what verses 12 and 14 say. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil run. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Here, John meets every Christian where they currently are in their spiritual life. From the one who is the newly convert to the one who sees the finish line. He speaks to recent converts in verses 12 and at the end of verse 13. These Christians, these children of faith who have just come to the faith and think that, well, because I'm falling in and out of sin, that means that I'm not saved and I can't do it. He says, children, listen, your sins are forgiven. Yes, you commit sins daily, but if you are in Christ, those sins do not define who you are. You're forgiven in Christ. God has brought you out of darkness and into his light. Now walk in his light. He speaks of those mature in the faith. In verses 13 and 14, these Christians who have been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. And his encouragement is simply this. And if he, in saints, if you've been walking with the Lord a long time, John's encouragement to you is this. Keep going. Amen. Keep going. Amen. Young people, I advise you. Talk to Mary. Talk to Antonio. Talk to Sister Ophelia in the back. And the only thing that I would ask them is, how'd you do it? How are you still holding up after so many years? There's something admirable. There's something that we should, that we should learn from these older people of the faith who've been walking with the Lord, who've been going through this and that, and they still stand. They're still coming to church. He speaks to those young men. And these are the Christians, like many of us, who are in the middle of the fight. You don't see the starting line because you're not that new to the faith. And you don't see the finish line because you're not that old in the faith. And the race might seem a little grueling. And there's temptations all around. And the days might seem so long. 
You know, when you can't see the finish line and when you can't see where you started from, the days can go by so long. And you might think to yourself, I can't do this. I can't finish this race. How am I going to do it? John says, you're strong. The word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Saints, that is my charge and encouragement to you this morning. Whether you are an infant babe of the faith or you are a grandma and grandpa of the faith, you are strong. You have overcome the evil one. Because Christ abides in you. You can do this. You can live this way. And saints, what I offer you this morning is a better portion. I offer you a better way to live. Live the way Christ lived. Love your brothers and sisters of the faith. And do not love this world. Let's pray.